You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's second lesson of the Daniel module, Mechanics of Preaching, getting down to the mechanics of preaching in week two, Philip Edwards will explore the basic rules all preachers should observe. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study past modules, register for future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome this evening to our uh, second lesson, isn't it? Yeah, second evening on preaching and learning the skills of preaching, but also being very conscious of what a preacher is trying to do because we will spend quite a lot of our Christian lives listening to sermons and messages. We'll have a word of prayer and then I'll just have a brief recap on last week. Father, we're here again because we want to commit ourselves to understanding and learning and developing this Christian life. And we know that your words uh, bring truth and life and vitality to us. So we just commit ourselves now to receive from you, to hear the Holy Spirit within us talking and to, to enjoy this time together and to grow in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brief recap then on week one. We said that uh, preaching, the preacher becomes a channel for God to speak to his people. It isn't, uh, it's been there all all of the time. Old Testament, New Testament, uh, men, women of God would stand and preach and bring the message of God to the people. Uh, We have very uh, many modern techniques today but I don't think preaching will ever wear itself out. I think God will always use men and women to convey his thoughts and ideas to his people. We said it was the work of the Holy Spirit. You don't decide that you're going to be a preacher, but the Spirit of God moves you to do that. It says that Christ gave gifts to the church, gifts of people, and all of those fivefold ministry gifts, they have to have the ability to preach and communicate what God wants to say. We said the Holy Spirit first instructs the preacher on what he is to say, what he is to preach on. He helps him prepare as he sets time aside to gather information, to listen to God, to construct uh, the sermon. And then when he stands before the people, he needs the anointing of God to to bless the people with it. It's something... uh, an anointing. We need, we need it to be able to communicate God's truth into the hearts of people. We said God's word is the bread of life. It is a bread that feeds the soul. We feed our bodies, we make them healthy and strong. Uh, we feed our minds by communicating and reading and just uh, in conversation. We feed our, our mind all the time. We feed our spirit, our soul, as it were, that part that's that God, through his word, he ministers to us. The intent of the sermon is to instruct, is to persuade, and it's to motivate. Two of the students tonight are going to take five minutes each to uh, share a message that they've prepared, 
and uh, the rest of the class will be looking for that. They'll be looking for uh, instruction, persuasion, and motivation. They'll be looking for a, a number of other things as well. Uh, we're not going to grill the poor preachers, uh, but we are going to draw out the best points and the uh, areas that were perhaps um, they could have improved on. But it's all in love and uh, it's only to encourage one another. To instruct people, the language that you must use, we said, should be clear and interesting. To persuade people, we use evocative language, interesting, and there's an amount of energy in it that, that causes us to move along with the thoughts of the preacher. To motivate us, we need a lot of energy in our preaching, a lot of emotion, and of course that's what the evangelist is very good at, isn't he? Moving people onwards, getting them to make a decision, getting them to stand and respond to his message. And within any sermon, within any talk we prepare, we need to see elements of these three styles all the time. Instructing, uh, persuading and motivating the people. This week we're going to look at, before we have... Uh, our first person come and speak to us just for probably about 20-25 minutes or so and then we'll give it over to one of the students. Um, selecting a passage to preach, how do you choose on what to preach about? The students that went off last week to prepare, they first had to ask God, what do you want me to talk about? Holy Spirit, show me, tell me, just give me a word or a verse or a thought or an idea. Drop this idea into me so I can start developing these things. It might feel as though the preacher is deciding these things, but really it's the Holy Spirit who decides it. He knows what the congregation or the, the group of people that he's speaking to, what they need. And so if he's going to be effective, the speaker, he needs to know what God wants to say to these people. He needs to be open and to listen. <laughs> God is so clever, isn't he? He works with us, and yet he doesn't overpower us or make us think it's him all the time. He makes it think it's us, that we're doing all the work, that we've somehow got it, that we've heard it. And of course, that's fine, that's what he does. He's like a father encouraging his son and all the time the father's taking the load really and the son is just taking a little bit of the load because the son thinks he's lifted the whole thing up and he's doing all the work. But God is working with us all the time and we want him to. Deciding what to speak about, we're either going to decide on a topic a subject to speak about or we're going to take a passage of scripture and we're going to develop that or explain that or uh, share what Jesus was teaching or whoever wrote that passage under the inspiration of the Spirit. So we're either going to preach on a topic or we're going to preach on a passage of scripture. I want us to consider when we choose a passage of scripture uh, a number of things. We have to select a real text. What is, what's a real text? Um, it's something that's visibly clear and uh, it's, it's, all, it's, it's all seen in what we're saying. It's captured in the whole thing. It's not left with blurs around it that we're not sure is God really saying this, is this what the Bible's saying? It's visually crisp and clear. It's, it's obvious as you read it. Uh, 
we have to choose, when we're going to preach on a real text, a statement from Scripture, something that is definitely said, definitely taught, a precept in, structure, an, uh, in Scripture, an instruction uh, or a narrative, a story that holds within it a truth, like a parable or something that Jesus did that holds the truth in it. That's, that's a real text. I'll give you an example of that. Let's consider a real text of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Say you were given that subject to say, I want you to, to bring a, a short word on what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, you'd go to an example, if you were preaching from the text, uh, from one of the passages in the book of Acts, because that's where we read the accounts of them being filled with the Holy Spirit. There are three. There's one in Acts 2, where the 120 were filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. There's the one in Acts 10, where the Gentiles were filled in the house of Cornelius. A very similar event happened. And there's a third one in Acts 19, where Paul is in Ephesus, and he meets a dozen young men or so, and they think they're born again and following Jesus. And he says to them, well, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they say, we've never even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Of course, that launches uh, Paul into explaining what the Holy Spirit is, and of course, they're filled. So these are very clear passages that I believe that God, the Holy Spirit, has put them in there so they can be instructive in teaching. Real texts. Just take them, just take one of them and start to expound those scriptures and it's all in there. It's all very clear. Instructing people how to be filled with the Holy Spirit or how to receive the Holy Spirit. Another term is how to be baptised in the Holy Spirit. So any legitimate theme in scripture that God wants to communicate we can find a real text for it. We can turn to it in Scripture, open it up, and it's clear. An example of teaching a theme on a single word or fragment that is not a real text. So I chose something a bit weird, uh, because you might remember it's a bit weird, and you might think, oh, oh yeah, I'm surprised that that's not in there. Dancing in church. I want you to preach a sermon for me on the legitimacy of dancing before the Lord in church. Let that sink in for a minute. Any scriptures jump to mind? Okay, we've got a David. Any others? What you can discover is there's nothing in the New Testament about dancing. So that gives some problems sometimes to some Christians because they think, well, if it's that important, it should be in the New Testament. A quote in from St. Augustine, this is what he said, that dance incited idolatry, lust and damnation. A bit harsh, isn't it? And he's well-respected, old St. Augustine, for saying lots of wonderful good things, but um, it was not allowed at all for about 500 years in the church. The idea of dancing was completely outlawed and seen as evil and wrong and shouldn't happen. So what does the Bible say about it? Are we supposed to dance in church? Uh, is there scripture to support it or not? Is it a real thing or is it just 
something that we've imagined. Well, uh, Daniel was quote, uh, sorry, David was quoted there as someone who danced before the Lord, but there's, there's many verses in the Old Testament, and of course many of them were written by David in the Psalms. Psalm 149 verse 3 says, let them praise him with dancing. Jeremiah says in 31.13, Then shall the young women rejoice in dance. Psalm 150, verse 4, Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Ecclesiastes 3.4, A time to mourn and a time to dance. Psalm 30 and 11, you have, you, have, you have turned me from mourning into dancing. Jeremiah 31.4 again, Go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Mm. but it's nowhere in the New Testament at all. Okay. I'm seeing some hands where people are untrusting on what I'm saying. Anyway, I could be proved wrong. Okay. Anyway, but if you found it, please come back with me. Is it because it was such a part of the Jewish culture, the Jewish way of life, that dancing found its way into scriptures? It was so much of what they did it was so natural for them to dance. It was an expression of their joy. The two passages that I've got from the New Testament is one found in Luke 15 and 25. It's the parable of the prodigal son, remember? And he says, as he drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. But that's not a real text, is it? It's reference to something in a story. You're not being instructed to dance. You're not being encouraged to dance. It's like a, a remote reference to something. And often, and I've used this one in preaching as well, because uh, the charismatic church got quite into dancing, didn't it, at one time? Uh, it's in Luke 10 and 21. It said, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Now, I've used that and preached on that and thought, this is where Jesus danced, because the actual expression, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, is the word exalts, E-X-A-L-T-S. So, of course, you have to dig around and find out, well, what does this word mean? Because we don't use it much today. Exalts means to feel or show triumphant elation or jubilation. You say, that's it. That's dancing. Well, it doesn't actually say dancing, so you better keep dig digging, digging, just to see what it does say. It's best understood as leaping for joy. So when Jesus heard that they had returned and uh, God had given them authority over the demons, Jesus was excited because now the anointing that he knew was on him and he passed to the twelve was now on all disciples. And so they were entering into the battle and everything else with him. So it's more like Jesus did a high five than danced, actually. But I don't think he did high fives, do you? No, I hope not. Okay, okay, no, I don't think so. Seems a bit messy, that one. Okay, but he leapt for joy. To exalt then means to leap for joy. So you can't preach dancing from a real text. It's not there. You're not instructed to do it. Now, does that say that we shouldn't do it? Well, there's not many verses in the New Testament about worshipping or singing praises to God. You say, well, Philip, this has all been ridiculous now. You see, there's 
literally scores and scores of verses in the Psalms about worshipping and praising and, and giving praise to God. And it's, if you were going to preach on worship and praise and singing, you would find yourself in the Psalms, not in the New Testament. So on that argument, I would say it's quite legitimate to teach dancing from the Old Testament. But I must be honest, I haven't got a real text for it. Do you understand what I mean by a real text? You can't say, here it says, you should dance all the time before the Lord. It doesn't say that. Second thing is that when you're going to preach on a, a, a particular text, um, pick on something um, that's a real doctrinal uh, theme, um, a real ethical text, we call it. Uh, every doctrine, and you think, well, we know all about this. All the doctrines need to be taught again and again and again. Paul was not ashamed to repeat his sermons again. Jesus repeated his sermons again and again. All people who travel and preach, I tell you, they repeat their sermons again and again and again because it's always a new audience and a new group of people that they're preaching to. Every doctrine then needs to be preached over and over again. And sometimes you think back, if you've been in the church a long time, you're thinking, wow, how many sermons have I heard on the prodigal son? or the Good Samaritan, or turning water into wine, or all of those where you've heard them many, many, many times. And, and sometimes it's almost like it's fresh again, as though you'd never heard it, or there's a certain aspect of it, or points in it, you think, oh, I never saw it quite like that. So it's worth repeating, even if people have all heard it before, because we're very good at forgetting. We don't hold everything. Uh, we only hold the things that we keep repeating and keep doing all the time or keep saying. The rest, we lose it. Also, that lots of things need reinforcing all the time because don't forget an enemy is coming all the way to, all the time to steal the word of God away from us. So um, you can stick to all the basic stuff. So if the students that come and speak and share, if there's something that is so traditional and you've heard it many times, that's, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. You should really avoid texts that um, they're known to be interpolations. An interpolation is an insertion to the text at a later time. Some people who know the scriptures might say, oh, I don't accept these interpolations. And they're quite legitimate not to do it. You say, well, it's in the Bible. But you say, no, it wasn't in the original text that the apostles wrote. This was added. And some of these interpolations were added up to two centuries after the scriptures were written. I mean, they were agreed upon about four, three or four hundred years. Uh, you know, so uh, 200 years was fine to stick things in, you know. But, I mean, they tried to protect the word, but certain things got added in. Um, it's called text moulding. And so to make it sound better, or what the church thought it should say, they added some bits sometimes. Would you like to know what bits they added? I'm sure you would, yes. Okay, uh, the, the, the first very obvious one is found in Mark, and it's chapter 16. Um, in 
many, many Bibles, it says this uh, for you. Uh, so we go to the last chapter of Mark, and um, what it does in my Bible, it draws a definite line under verse um, 8 of chapter 16 of Mark's Gospel. And it says this, The most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 to 20. So in the most original manuscripts, it finished at verse 8. And people thought as they read this, there's something wrong with this. We need to do something about this. Let me read to you verse 8 and see how this gospel finishes. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's not a good verse to finish the gospel on, is it? We've got trembling, bewildered, and afraid. And they thought, this isn't good. Now, someone has suggested the, white, the reason it finished like that, because the whole Mark's gospel is depicting Jesus as a servant. And so when a servant's life is finished, he's just buried. There's, there's no great remembering what he did or anything. He came as a servant, he did his work, he died, and he was buried. And now we need to find another servant to replace that servant. So in the, in the, uh, the context of the idea is that's the picture, then that's how the servant would have died. Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know. Maybe there was something that was written at the end, but it got lost. Maybe that manuscript, it was torn off that last bit. We don't know. So in the, I'm not quite sure when it did happen, but on later manuscripts that they found, these bits were added from verse 9 to the end of 20. It talks about when Jesus rose on the first day of the week, he went and he found them and he told them off for their lack of faith and then he told them about laying hands on the sick and casting out demons and all that sort of thing. So it finishes on this really positive note but it is added. So you might find yourself preaching on that one day, then someone comes up to you and says, of course, it wasn't in the original text, was it? And you go, mm, yeah, I've got to agree with that. So you're best off not preaching from that. Now, having said that, I've preached from it many times, okay. Because uh, I think, well, if, if God got it in there and 2,000 years later, it's still in there, that's a good enough argument uh, for me. In Matthew uh, chapter 6 and 13, if you want to just uh, jot these ones down, is, there's a copy of the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew, they put a doxology on the end of it that wasn't originally there. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The suggestion is that doxology, that end of that prayer was written because in the other uh, places where you look for the Lord's Prayer, it's not written there. And so um, why would they put a doxology at the end of that? When the disciples came to Jesus, they came to him and they said, teach us how to pray, not give us a prayer that we could pray. And if he had just given them a prayer to pray, you would have had a doxology on the end of it. But there wasn't one there. 
it was an instruction how they were to pray, not what they were to pray. But the early church thinking, we'll use this as a prayer. And so they finished it off with the doxology. So they've, they've sort of tampered with it a little bit. In Mark, uh, sorry, in Matthew, where Jesus is speaking about divorce, there's, you can read uh, where he talks about it in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. In Matthew 5 and 31, or 32, and in Matthew 19 and 9, he, they add this little bit on to what Jesus says, it appears. Grounds of fornication or adultery were not part of the Lord's teaching. Uh, remember, they asked him another case, uh, should people get divorced? And he said, no, no account. And then they added this on to what Jesus had said. There are these two grounds in which people can be divorced. But the original idea is what Jesus never gave any grounds. It was for life, and that's all there was to it. People refer back to what it said in Deuteronomy 24 and 1. And it says this, if he finds something indecent about her, he can divorce her. But we don't know what this indecent thing was. So we know the rabbis argued intently about what this indecent thing was. And so they decided, somebody decided, this indecent thing was either fornication or adultery. So they added that to what Jesus said, that is what is suggested, that he never said it at all. Just a couple more. In Acts 15, 29, um, it's where some of the church is saying, give us some rules that we can live by. And so the church, uh, as it got together, they thought, oh, what rules can we give them? And so we end up with three rules that the church said that new converts were to not do. They were to abstain from food offered to idols. They were abstain from blood and from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. It is suggested that there were no rules. There were no rules at all laid down and this was added I tend to believe that the early church didn't have rules at all. They had broken free from the law and they were now going to follow God by the Holy Spirit's guiding and his instruction. And the whole idea of giving some people just these three rules, doesn't it seem odd to you? Would these have been the ones that you would have chosen if you were going to give three rules to people to obey? I think this was added on after. There's another good example in John 7. Let me take you to this one. Fascinating, isn't it? All this stuff. We. Okay, John 7 and um, verses 53. Again, I've got one of these lines in my Bible that says, the earlier and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 to 8, 11. This is the whole story of the woman taken in adultery and then Jesus having to judge it. 
It wasn't even in the original manuscripts. Who put it in there? Why was it added on? There's nothing wrong with the teaching, it's fine. But it wasn't there. The last one I've got for you is in John 5 and 3 to 5. I've always thought this one was odd. Wondered why it was there. In John 5, verses 3 to 5, in my Bible, there's not even a verse 4. It jumps from 3 to 5. I don't know about your Bibles. John 5, 3 to 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem from verse 1 for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, where in, where in Aramaic is called Bethsaida and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of, dis of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now verse four isn't in my Bible at all. Is it in your Bibles? No, 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 okay. Now, one who was there had been an invalid, jumps to verse five, for 38 years, and it goes on to tell the story. But you know the story like this, because verse 4 says something like this. Some less important manuscripts paralysed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters, the first one into the pool after each, after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever issue he had. Did you ever think that was odd? Really odd that an angel would come and stir the waters. You see, it wasn't there in the original manuscript. They added it. And I was quite relieved when I discovered they added it because I just think it didn't fit in. It just doesn't fit in. It's almost like it's magic, isn't it? That just every now and then the angel appears and does something a bit odd. And all those who rush into the water get healed first. It doesn't seem the way that God would do things to me. So I'm really glad it's left out of most Bibles. So, so don't preach on it. Please don't preach. On, well, do what you like in the end. You're standing up here. You choose what to do. I would never preach on that because it's odd. It's just odd. Uh, avoid the sayings of uninspired men, people like Job's friends or Satan, or Pharaoh, or Balaam, or Pilate, any of these. And now, it's all scripture, and all scripture is God-breathed. So you say, can I preach on it, Phil, or not preach on it? Well, just bear in mind that these people who said these things uh, were wayward. They were away from God. Now, they, we can use some of the things they said in the context of the story, but it's not good to quote them. Not good to quote these people at all. Do not choose a text because it's odd. Don't preach on anything odd. I looked up a couple of odd ones for you. This is a nice odd one. Proverbs 31 and 6. Give beer to those who are perishing and wine to those who are in anguish. Well, that's odd, isn't it? I mean, what are you supposed to make of that verse? Give beer to those who are perishing 
and wine to those who are in anguish. So you get beer or wine, you get something anyway, okay, if, you, if you're feeling down. And, and why, I mean, it's just, just don't go there. That would be my advice. I mean, I'm sure it's fantastic and you could do a whole research on it, but I just wouldn't go there. And that one in Acts 29, where Paul's preaching, and he never knows when to stop, does he? And he preaches late, late, late into the night and some poor kid who's sitting in the window and I don't know why his mother ever let him sit in the window, he falls out the window and kills himself in the street. Don't preach on that one. Don't go there. I mean, just, it's odd, you know what I mean? Of all the Bible you can preach from, don't go to the odd bits, okay? Now, I have used that to say how Paul raised someone from the dead, but that moving quickly, you know... Okay. okay. Humour is okay in sermons, but it has to be in good taste. I mean, lavatory jokes and things like that, that's not good taste, is it? And uh, stuff like that. Um, uh, Darren, in the church where I was on Sunday, uh, he was they're working through the book of Galatians. And in Galatians 5, Darren got that passage of scripture. Uh, a young man who's new at preaching, uh, relatively new. And of course he has the bit where Paul says, I'm not, you know, about being circumcised. He says, no, I have nothing to do with circumcision. What I would do, I'd emasculate all of them completely. And I think it, <laughs> I mean, the picture it conjures up in your mind. You think, no, don't go there. So um, if I was to... I think if I was to advise a young preacher, I'd leave it out. I just wouldn't bother with it because it doesn't help. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't help. It sort of undermines sometimes other good things that you might say because you can't get people back, can you, from that? You, you say, <laughs> Come back and listen to something more important. So just, just uh, move on. Okay, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to stop there um, and I'm going to ask Simon if he would come and remember what we're looking for here. Uh, those of you that are listening or looking online or those in the classroom, we are listening for instruction, for persuasion, and you make a few notes if you will. Instruction, persuasion and motivation. We're looking for clarity, interest, evocative language to persuade you, we're looking for energy, and we're looking for emotion. So, Simon. Let's pray. Father, guard my tongue, where the truth is not in my words, silence me. Fill my broken clay pot with your spirit, now, so that only your words flow out into the ears of your children. Amen. Have you ever been stalked by scripture, particularly one you don't like? By stalked, I mean exactly that. It invades your quiet time, your worship time, your work day, a favourite podcast. It gets right inside your head. Friends mention it, preachers preach it, and the internet spits it out on all your devices. Thankfully, that's not a stalker. It's a friend. We invited him in, and his message is one that requires attention. It happened first five years ago, right after I became a Christian. Be still and know that I am God, Psalm 46, 10a, was, a, was jarring to my take charge, make it happen personality. It was the right message at the right time. 
But now that I'm more comfortable with it, even using it on occasion to not do something I know I should do, um, it's no surprise that another verse has taken its place. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Proverbs 9, 10a. I suspected it was for me when my first reaction was that I don't like it any more than I understand it. After three other mentions in different forms, it became Holy Bible Apps verse of the day on June 22nd, 2022, and I knew that I'd better start wrestling with it. I don't like what I think this verse implies. Love? Yes, yes, yes. Worship? Absolutely. Trust? Okay, I'll try it. Obey? I know I should. Fear? Mm, no. So, I'd better wrestle with it. What fear of God must I acknowledge in order to begin to build wisdom? It isn't like it's the weather vane on the roof. It's the entire foundation. Without wisdom, without it, wisdom in this life completely eludes us. I'll be still and pray about it. I knew that my bite-sized scripture for my bite-sized sermon I knew what it would be before Phil even volunteered me last week. There went my excuse. Now, I, what I didn't know was what it meant and what I was going to say about it. And I've learned that that is a good thing. It lets God's will in and keeps mine at bay. So after, pre after praying about it, all I could remember was my dad's sermon writing instruction at the Oak Hill Evangelical College. The sermon rule of three, modelled on the Trinity with a hefty dose of scripture and a pinch of Anglican brevity. So let's go with three strategies for understanding scripture. One, what's the context? Well, there's a slight problem here. It's a proverb. It's designed to be taken out of context. In context, you've got to throw in wisdom and justice, verse 9, good judgment, verse 10b, and, oh, a long life, <laughs> verse 11. So the stakes are getting higher. So much for context. On to strategy two. Consult the meaning found in the original language. Okay, here there is scholarly consensus in that both the Greek and the Hebrew word used for fear has a positive inference that more accurately means awe. Now I'm a bit more comfortable. It must just be a translation issue. But wait a minute. Surveying all known translations on my Holy Bible app, I see a respect, an obey translation, a revere translation, a fear with awe in brackets translation, but everything else is fear. Now let me say this to you. If your fear of the Lord simply and comfortably means awe and wonder, God bless you. I wish it did for me too, but I'm not there yet. So to quote a friend and mentor of mine, I must go deeper. Strategy three, Holy Spirit, help me go deeper. Why do I struggle with this scripture while others are at peace with it? 
I believe, now that's weaker than know and stronger than think, right, uh, that this is what the Holy Spirit revealed to me. And Phil, you can call time on me, but I wouldn't advise doing it on the Holy Spirit. As a non-Christian, I feared nothing. I drank my fears away. Sadly, I was also in awe of nothing. The war for my soul was won for Jesus five years ago, but I'm still far too connected to a place where the battle still rages. I have a problem with this scripture because I should have a problem with this scripture. My fear has not yet turned to awe. My spirit is in awe of God, but my flesh is literally scared to death of God, as it should be. In particular, my flesh fears, you guessed it, three things. God's omnipresence, because there's nowhere left to hide. His omniscience, because all of the lies are now exposed by his truth. And his omnipotence, the magnitude and certainty of his final victory. There's one more scripture for those of us who can't yet see the awe of God for the fear of God. And it's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Amen. Okay, we'll leave it there. Well done, Simon. Well done. Okay. Good stuff. okay, we'll have a break there. I'll bring some more teaching in the second half and we'll have another um, student um, give her the liberty, a lady this time, uh, to teach us. Okay, thank you. I want to speak in this section um, about still preparing a sermon. It's all about the mechanics of a sermon, uh, of getting it together. Uh, ask that question again. What, what am I to preach about um, ministers have to think that all the time, don't they? They could have a lectionary where someone has decided in advance what they're to preach about and they just go for the next verse, the next passage of scripture. And it, it's a good thing in a way in that it takes you all the way through the scriptures rather than um, just deciding what you want to do all the time. Again, it's about being open to the spirit directing us uh, on what to preach about. You could ask yourself, well, the first thing is, what do the people need to hear? If you're with a congregation and technically they are your sheep and you are caring for them and looking after them, as you talk to them week by week, you should hear what they're talking about, what their problems are, what issues they're facing. And the Lord might direct you in just knowing your congregation, what it is you should be speaking about. You might want to speak on what's fashionable in the church. Um, there's that verse in Revelation uh, that says uh, in 3 and 22, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Maybe through reading Christian magazines or looking at what books are being published today or listening to the songs, and of course songs are flooding the market all the time. Is the Spirit of God trying to teach the church something? Is the Spirit of God saying something through these articles, through these books, through these songs? Maybe there's 
God wants us to, to develop our church in a certain way, certain doctrines that have been lost that he wants to bring back into the church. And we find lots of people are singing or talking about these things. What is God speaking to the preacher about? It's as though God's dumped this on me, I'm going to dump it now on you. It's like as the preacher struggles with certain things and you think, well, if he's struggling with something, we, we don't want to hear that. We want to know the, what, what the end result is, how he's got victory over it. But sometimes the preacher can take you through the situation with him. He might only be a few steps ahead of you as he, and, and you identify with him and you're not trying to get sympathy or anything. It's just the thing of you're identifying with the people. I too am working through this issue. And so uh, it could be that the Holy Spirit wants you to talk about those things that you are working through. It could be that the Holy Spirit wants you to do systematic teaching. A verse-by-verse -verse approach to building up people's understanding. Uh, Teaching uh, that um, has a carefully planned sequence. We'll do part one and then next week we'll move on to two and three and four. So you build the picture, the story, the truth, the narrative week by week. Building from maybe easier tasks to more difficult ones. Paul does this, doesn't he? Writing to the, um, to the Romans and to the... Ephesians. He builds the picture of the church or he builds what salvation is and this wonderful life that we have. And so this this sort of systematic way of doing things. If you do, don't make it too long because people haven't got that longevity. Uh, you know, someone said, oh, we're doing a 42-week series on such and such. You go, oh. I'm not going to stick at this for 40 odd weeks, you know. So maybe you could do a thing for six weeks or you could do a thing for probably eight weeks is maximum. And not everyone's going to be there all the time, but hopefully they can catch up and listen to it. But yeah, don't make it too long, but you can, you can do some real important things in building it week by week by week. A thematic uh, study where you pick on a particular topic and you preach on that either a one-off or then a series. The Bible has so much to say about prayer. So, I mean, you just couldn't put that in one sermon. There's so much to say about faith, covenants, healing, big, big topics that are in the Bible from beginning to end, really, to, to give it justice. And uh, people just want simple, simple things because these great things are not simple. Faith is not simple, or to understand the covenants of God is not a simple thing. And so we might work through these uh, theme things. Changing the direction of the church is something that you might preach on. A church is going in a certain direction and you want to introduce something in your church that's not there. Short-term missions, ministry to the poor, the introduction of fellowship groups, fasting, that would go down well, wouldn't it? Um, deliverance ministry, to get the church to pray for revival. It might be saying, well, we never do any of that. So the, the pastor has to carefully build that in through careful teaching 
over a period of time. You can't just give one sermon and expect everyone to jump in both it. That's not what people do. They need to be convinced. They need to be led into something. So you really, if the church wants to change direction or introduce something, it is from the pulpit that the pastor can just gradually turn people around to move in this new direction. Sometimes it's good to preach on a word you get from the Lord in a, a vision or a dream or a prophecy. Normally it would be spoken like a prophetic word, but you could preach on a whole dream that the Lord might have given you. You could preach on sermons that you've preached before and you just thought it had a tremendous anointing on it when you preached on it and God would inspire you to preach on that one again. But if you do, when you get it out, check it out because your theology might have changed because um, we're all... <laughs> We're all coming to a greater knowledge and understanding of the truth. So just because you preached on it 10 years ago, you've probably moved in some of your understanding and how you look at things. And now you know there are better illustrations or better ways of preaching that sermon again. There could be simply inspirational preaching where God doesn't let you put pen to paper and you get this horrible feeling in your stomach that you're supposed to stand up in front of everyone with nothing in front of you, and God will just give you what to say. Oh, that's hard work. Um, but you've really got to know that God is doing that. Probably it's happened... Well, when I go uh, and do mission work, that happens all the time. And uh, I remember I went to Sri Lanka... Uh, for about a week and um, I was teaching themes on faith and um, I got up and I had all my notes from previous things and I stood up to preach on faith and I started oh and I struggled I thought what is this all about and I I battled my way through this and I would have probably been an hour preaching or something they wouldn't have allowed me to do any less and I remember going and then having some food and said Lord what's all this about? And he says, I don't want you to use your notes. And I thought, what, this afternoon you mean? Or the whole time? And I got a strong impression I wasn't to use my notes at all for the next week, probably preaching something like, I don't know, three or four hours a day. I had enough material, because it's a great topic. And I thought, I don't know if I can do this. So anyway, I got up in the afternoon, did what God said, just put them to one side and started to speak. And I spoke for the next five days on faith and never looked at a piece of paper once. I thought, Lord, that's amazing. I've never done it since. I don't want to do it particularly. Um, I think notes help you as much as they help me. If I didn't have them, I'd be wandering all over the place, getting lost, telling you all sorts of weird stories and missing the point completely. So the notes often keep you on track, keep you succinct, keep it sharp, keep it moving forward. But of course, God might cause you to do an inspirational talk. The Spirit might want you to write it all down. This is uh, interesting for Simon. To write every word down and literally to read it because he's in charge of what he wants you to do. Or he might say, no, what I want you to do is just share a testimony. Share your testimony. Talk about the history of how the church started. 
to whatever it is. But testimony, you don't need to usually write testimony down. It's, it's burning inside of you. Testimony is vital. Paul's testimony in the New Testament is written three times. And I always think to myself, you didn't give us much of a New Testament to start with. And to put Paul's story in it three times, what a waste of paper. Okay, because you could have put something else in that would have helped us a little bit more. We knew that a bit because his testimony is over and over and over again. A sermon, because uh, we've already spoke a little bit about time consideration. There's a sense in which the sermon is all of your life. Everything you've experienced with God, even away from God, that's made you into the preacher, and that's all part of the sermon. If you know what you're supposed to speak about, it's better to get it earlier than later, so the thoughts have all those opportunities to flow in and out of your mind, maybe for a week or two weeks. You must always set sufficient time aside to study and to look and to study and to write and to rewrite and to rethink as much time as you have. And be open all the time uh, so you're open for what God is talking to you about as you prepare to share what he wants you to share. Getting down to it. I want to consider a passage uh, just for about 10 minutes or so, uh, looking at a passage and then maybe somewhat between us or, uh, yeah, we'll do it between us. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 2. Uh, verses 1 to 10. In the preparation of teaching from a passage, if we had a passage like this, I just want to break it down for us just to show the mechanics of, of putting it together. You might read through this passage a couple of times, it's fairly short, two or three times. You might choose to look into some commentaries of what other people have written. Don't get lost in commentaries, uh, just just read one or two really to get a few ideas. You might have favourite writers who've written good commentaries on certain passages. Uh, commentators that write about everything, mm, they're not always good on everything. They're good on some things and not on everything. You might have a book about this particular subject and you might just want to read the chapter to refresh yourself what this book said about it if it's a particular author that you like. In the passage, when you've read it, ask yourself, what is the main thrust of this? When I finished, if I meet that person tomorrow and say, tell me in one word what I spoke on yesterday, would they ever be able to do it? And we said, they've forgotten by tea time, <laughs> tomorrow. But no, I mean, there should be, the sermon should have had enough so they could hold on to one word. You were speaking about faith. You were speaking about salvation. You were speaking about hope. You were speaking about that. So, so we should have that. As we read through the passage, we might feel that it divides itself up 
very neatly into certain sections or parts. I've divided this one because I've done some homework on it for you in advance. And I'm going to show you how it cuts itself up into three sections. The first three verses of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, it's, it's about, it describes us what we were like. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying uh, the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature uh, objects of God's wrath. So that's describing all of us prior to coming to Christ. We were under the power of Satan, it says, the spirit of this world. We followed the cravings of our own nature. We did what we wanted to do. There's one word that sums us up here. It's disobedient. Objects of God's wrath. That sounds terrifying. Uh, it isn't as awful as it looks. God looks at us and he's either pleased or he's not pleased. He's pleased or he's not pleased. So to be an object of his wrath, he's not pleased. So this, this captures us. This is it's like an instructive passage to us. It's saying this is what you were like. And then the second part, four to six, but God did something for us. But there's buts in scripture all the way through. They're, they're fascinating and interesting when you find one. This is what you're like, he says. You were an object of the wrath of God. You were disobedient by nature. But, he says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We were in this terrible state of rebellion against God, but God did something for us. God has done all of these things. They're not waiting to happen, but they're past tense. He's done it. What has he done? He made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in sin, by his grace he has saved us. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. When people are born again, they don't understand one word of that because they see themselves still as they always have seen themselves. But the reality is, is that when we came to Christ, he completely transformed our very lives and put us in a new place. And we have to then take all the, the time to grow into that place where he has made us these things. We are it already, we're in his sight, we're like this, but we have to grow into it. And the last part is about why he did this. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. He's going to show off. God's going to show you off. And angels are going to look at you and say, really? You got here 
it's amazing. How did you ever make it? Because I knew what you were like. And you would say, it's nothing to do with me. It's his incomparable grace, his incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourself, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This, again, both Romans and Ephesians, is packed full of truth. That to unpack it word by word is, is just exciting. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're no longer what we were. We're free now to live as we should. He did all of this. We've done nothing. He has done it all and given us all of these things. We are now stepping into what we were always created to be. So we have these three things. We have the instructing. All the way through this is to teach, to instruct what we were like, what God has done, why God did this. Clear, precise teaching that it is speaking to the mind so the mind understands it can grasp the reality of it then persuading we want to persuade people god has done this he has done it all we simply step into the reality of all the things that he's done we got to use imagery and pictures and expressions that will persuade people this is what we have in christ jesus People are locked in their sinful way, even though they're born again, thinking they're struggling now to get into a place where they become acceptable to God. They have to grow into this relationship when Christ says, no, I've picked you up and I've placed you in it. Now you need to realise what I've done. You cannot grow into this. You have to realise it is by my grace. If you can grow into it, it's not the real thing. It is by his grace and not by our own human efforts because we're all used to human effort. Work hard, apply yourself, then you'll be successful. And we've taken that into our Christianity and it's not a reality. And then it's a, a motivator as well. Stepping into this new safe life, enjoying the freedom of God's grace and working, doing good because he's created us to be workmen, all doing words, stepping, enjoying, working. There's an active side to this. Having realized who we are and what we have, we now put our energy into living it. That's all, just simply living it, believing it. So the, the motivator says, don't just sit there. Don't just sit there, get up. Get up and move and do something. Take your new position in Christ set about doing the good works that he's called you to do. He's a motivator. So this is a great little passage of scripture that we need all the understanding, the clarity, the teaching, all the persuading to know now who we are in Christ and then the motivation to get going. Do it, come on, do it today. Do it now, do it straight away. Exciting passage, how we take a passage and then break it up like that. It's next week we're going to look at how we take um, a topic and then work at that. But 
what I want to do now is uh, give someone another opportunity to come and present their sermon. I'm sorry, it is limited to five minutes and, uh, and we'll listen carefully and uh, pick up all the positives and don't be afraid to challenge. And Jill won't fall apart, will you, Jill, if we say this is how things can be done better. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, hello, good evening and welcome. <laughs> um, right. Who knows John 3.16 off by heart? John 3.16. Can I read it to you? Yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Unconditional love. Uh, my youngest daughter was at a party uh, quite a few years ago when she was about four or five, and uh, there was a little quiz and the hostess said, um, can the children give us a, a, a phrase or a saying that they know? And little Lara, at the age of four, when she was innocent, said, um, gave this John 3.16. And um, it, was, it was quite sad because the lady who was running the party said, oh, can you just tell us something that we all know? And I thought, how sad that is, isn't it? that's the most important thing that we're ever going to hear, that we're ever going to take on board, is John 3.16. But let's talk about the unconditional love, right? So we've got three types of love the Bible talks about. So the three types of, 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 uh, from the Greek is the, um, the erotic love, the eros love, which is... Uh, it's sort of gratifying basic needs, I suppose, erotic love. That's what the, that's what the dictionary says. And then we've got the um, filial love, um, which is, uh, again, the, the, the dictionary says an affectionate love without, with, um, without attraction, a sort of brotherly love. Um, I think that's love that we have for our children, our, our brothers, our sisters, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we've got the um, agape love. Now, if you're posh, you say agape, but I say agape. <laughs> and uh, this is this incredible love. This, I actually struggle with really believing what that is, because to be perfectly honest, we live in the world, don't we? And actually, there's not a lot of that about us. I mean, we have a lot of the other two, but there's not a lot. Uh, the, the agape love, which is the, that, that God, that, that God-like love. Um, that's profound, again, the dictionary says, profound sacrificial love, which is what the Lord has um, for us. Now, um, the, the incredible thing about our Lord is that um, he didn't make us robots, did he? He gave us a free, uh, a free will, which, is, which again is unconditional love. Because it's not, I can't say to my kids when they come in the door, tell me that you love me. Because that isn't true love, is it? That's not, that's not real love at all. So it, the interesting thing is nowadays, it's really quite trendy as well to say, oh, bye, love you. And again, is that really what we're talking about here? 
Um, it's, uh, he, he gives us a, a choice. Uh, when I was working in prison, we, we, we did a thing on repentance and, and saying sorry. And that's almost how the fashion's going with the word love. Um, it's a bit like saying sorry. Apparently, we say sorry 40 times a day on average. So, uh, I think another thing that the world can possibly do um, before we know that agape love or, or even start to understand what that might be is um, I think that the world gets love and lust mixed up actually, don't you? And that's, that's why we, we tend to get into these situations which are not of the Lord. Um, it's interesting if we look at... Um, have you got your Bibles with you guys? If you go to um, John 21, um, verse 15. Okay. And it's when Jesus reinstates Peter. And uh, this is after the resurrection. And they were on the uh, riverside. Um, and uh, it, this is after... Peter actually denied Jesus three times. So, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Now, it's so interesting with this, I think, that because Peter had already denied him three times and Jesus here calls him Simon Peter, but he asks if he loves him three times. It, it just sort of shows us that, um, that, that, that the love is so forgiving that even though Peter did that, uh, Jesus has forgiven him so much. And he's, again, he, he actually starts calling him Peter again. Before that, he was calling him Simon Peter. But once... Um, again, Peter had said he, that he agapated the Lord three times. Um, it was as if that was the reinstatement, the, 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 again, the totally unconditional love. So, I'm going to finish with that. Um, I just want to challenge you to, to think about um, that absolute amazing special love that, that in fact it's so difficult sometimes for us to understand so um i'm just going to finish by um i can i can i read a poem that i wrote um i'm going to finish with that if that's all right with you guys um this is called unconditional love when i first knew you i didn't know what to expect but now I do, I'm given back my self-respect because of you and your unconditional love. You're always there and I should listen to you more. You say, come share, and then you open up the door. That's what you do with your unconditional love. I didn't know what love was until you showed me the way. I went my own way just because no one else would stay. Everyone just let me down and you turn my life around. It's all so new, now my feet don't touch the ground. Can reach the heights that I know you can see. 
I want to be the person that you can see in me. You say, come close, I'll give you unconditional love. I see your face, there's such compassion in your eyes. Just this watch, just watch this space. I'm not gonna listen to the lies. When I'm with you and your unconditional love. Thank you, Lord. And I just want to finish with this, which I heard in a song the other day. I just think it's lovely. And it says, I am safe, I am loved, and I am his. Thank you. Well done, Mac. Yeah, congratulations. Well done. Well done. Okay, so, um, yeah, that takes us to the end of this class. So I uh, hope to get uh, two or three more uh, for next week for you as we... Uh, develop this subject a bit further. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please join us next week for our third lesson in the Daniel module. If you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can do so by heading over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.